Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show usually <laughs> streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays at DocWashburnShow.com, and that's what we're doing today. It was a little bit different Friday when our Internet was down, and we actually did it at uh, at midnight Friday night, 11 p.m. Central Friday night, but we're back on track today. Happy New Year. Minutes after each live stream is completed, the Doc Washburn Show podcast is available for download at all your favorite podcast platforms. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook, and you can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. This is episode 58 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Monday, January 3rd, 2022, depending upon what time zone you are in. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashershow.com, and click on the button that says, Become a Patron. Now, before we get to today's guest, I just got to tell you something. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage that you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. I know folks who have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom. The freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they will drive it to you, no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has an Explore Payment Options button. Clicking that guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options you have full control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door anywhere in the continental United States, no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, now. Have you seen Joe Rogan's interview with Dr. Robert Malone yet? If not, I strongly recommend it. Dr. Malone actually invented the technology that is being used in the COVID vaccines. Now, the podcast he did with Joe Rogan tells you the truth about the China virus and also tells you the truth about the the lies from the U.S. government. Uh, by the way, uh, Producer Brian, do, do we have our... our are guests ready yet? Because I don't see anything here at all on the uh, net to phone. Okay, I think we're supposed to be. I think we're supposed to be getting our guests ready. Anyway, 
We have seen a lot of evidence that doctors and hospitals are killing people by refusing to treat them for the Wu flu. Now, the information that Dr. Malone shares on the Joe Rogan podcast is a matter of life and death. I watched the whole podcast interview last night. In it, Dr. Malone mentions his organization, WorldCovidSummit.org. A number of doctors associated with Dr. Malone are going to be hosting the latest World COVID Summit this Saturday from 9 to 4 at Apostolic Church on Landers Road in North Little Rock. Now, if you're in the Arkansas area, please plan to join us. My next guest will be one of the speakers this Saturday. Dr. Richard Urso is a medical doctor and scientist who graduated with highest honors from the University of Texas School of Medicine. He then completed five years of postgraduate training and research, and he is the sole inventor of an FDA-approved wound healing drug. He's gone on to repurpose many other medications for use in scarring, wound healing, inflammation, viral infection. He's the former chief of orbital oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, and he's been involved with COVID-19 since March 2020, discussing pandemic response, and he has treated over 1,100 COVID patients. He's been in the White House, in the U.S. House and U.S. Senate, and worked with members of the FDA, the, the CDC, and the NIH. He's been actively involved in his state with both the governor's office and the Texas Senate. It's an honor to welcome Dr. Richard Urso to the Doc Washburn Show, in the vain hope that he may be able to help us restore some sense of decorum to today's proceedings. All right, there we go. Dr. Urso, thanks for coming on the program. How are you today? Yes, sir. Doing great. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Uh, I don't know what it's like in, in Houston, Texas, where you are, but I see plenty of people in the Little Rock, Arkansas area still wearing masks outside, in the parking lot, outside the grocery store. What do you wish you could tell these people? Well, I I say, okay, thanks for asking that question. Uh, because it's a sensitive issue, okay? So what I usually say is, when my children are asleep at night, I have six kids, historically I've covered their feet because they're afraid of ghosts. They're afraid of, you know, it's fearful. And, uh, and so we cover their feet, not because there's ghosts in the house, but because there's fear in the, in the dark. Okay. So this is what we're faced with. Masks don't work. There's been 14 clinical trials, including N95. N stands for non-oil resistant. 95 stands for 95% airborne particles, 0% of viruses. There are zero randomized controlled trials showing that masks stop the spread of upper respiratory disease. So they've never worked. We had a study from 2020, uh, the Danish study, where it didn't work again, and it's never worked ever. And we had a long history of looking at this for decades for the flu. So I don't want to hurt people's feelings because it's not what I'm about, but, but basically masks don't work, unfortunately. And, of course, if they did work, we would have been out of this a long time ago. It's, it's silly to wear a mask outside. Now, speaking of which, you know, you, you bring something to mind here. We are seeing instances of people like, uh, say, for instance, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who is double vaxxed, probably got the booster, uh, socialist distancing all over the place, masking all over the place. When he reviews the troops, he wears a big shield over his face, and now he's got the woo flu. I mean, what, what does this tell us? 
I mean, it tells us that upper respiratory viruses are, are very difficult to control with these kind of measures. I think the best thing to do is if you are sick, stay home. That's a great way to start. Um, but the, all the social distancing, all this stuff, these, as everyone knows on this call, this is a new era where they, they've created this new uh, thing where we have to distance from each other, healthy people stay home. Um, you know, the sick um, uh, should be, in a sense, uh, quarantining because it's normal. I mean, we sick, we stay home from work. Um, and these extra measures have done nothing but shut down our economies, shut down uh, shut down our social uh, interactions, and basically created a, a new era where we're going to basically, in a sense, have fear being the major thing that motivates us in everything we do. And, and the mass psychosis of fear has been the major issue that we're dealing with. And people like this are playing into the narrative. They know these things don't work. There's smart people behind the scenes. These are not stupid people. The people that are running our country are not dumb. They know this. And this is, this is, this is an intentional attempt to create fear in our population so they can enact other issues, which, you know, I, I don't know what their agenda is, but I know it's not about a virus. All right. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Urso. He's going to be one of the main speakers this Saturday at the World COVID Summit uh, going on this Saturday from 9 to 4, Apostolic Church in Landers Road, uh, North Little Rock, Arkansas, if you're in the Arkansas area. Um, so you mentioned this mass formation psychosis. I watched the interview with um, one of your colleagues, Dr. Robert Malone, that uh, Joe Rogan did. I watched it last night on, on his video podcast. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Uh, mass formation psychosis that Dr. Malone was speaking about to uh, Joe, Joe Rogan. Well, you know, it's a, it's a complex issue, but at the end of the day, what we're dealing with is we don't have a pandemic of a virus. We pretty much have a pandemic of fear and the fear has created in some sense, a, a group that has created the people who are the haves and have nots. And, and so I'm going to kind of go a little bit away from what he talked about. Sure. And, and, and put it into some, some, some things I think are actionable. So in a sense, we, we have this fear of this virus, and yet we have a treatment that's very effective. So I think the very, one of the very first things that we have, to, we have to understand is the virus is treatable. And let me just say, it's an inflammatory disease after the first week. The virus is gone. The virus is dead. As you now see, the CDC has changed the recommendations to a five-day quarantine for people who don't know. We usually quarantine for about 10 days from a virus because we know respiratory viruses, um, they pretty much do all their uh, replicating for about five to seven days. And then after that, average of about six. And in fact, no one even cultured the virus last year in an individual who might've been in the hospital for three and four weeks. Nobody cultured it past eight days. What they do do is they do PCR tests, which is like finding little dead body parts. So, so in a sense, that can be found in the body for up to two months. So it's confusing. And so the main thing is to create a lot of fear and confusion. So nobody knows, do, are they infectious two months later? Just massive amounts of misinformation, misdirection. Fear is the main thing that we're dealing with. And so this has created this people that are really just very angry at other people for not getting their vaccines. Um, for in, And in fact, we know the vaccines don't stop the disease. It doesn't stop transmission. And there's many scientific reasons, and I'm happy to go into those. 
and I, I'm, we will be going into some of those, but I'll give you one. When you get a vaccine, you don't create secretory IgA in the nose. Guess what the major antibody is in the entire body? Secretory IgA. You don't create any. You only create IgM and IgG in your body. You, no one needs to remember that on this call. Just know that the vaccine, by definition, is only going to have a moderate to, to, to almost no effect on disease transmission and infection. And so this means that you can't create safe schools. You can't create safe workplaces through a vaccination program with this type of respiratory virus. It just doesn't happen. People are sick, need to stay home. That's it. And then we go on with life. We have treatment. It's an inflammatory disease. It's a blood clotting disease. And when you understand that, your fear will melt away. When you understand we can't control this. Well, you know, doctor, so you just give me some great, uh, great news here, uh, which is you don't, for the purpose of this phone call, you don't have to remember what IgA, IgG, and IgM are because I was just about to ask you, well, wait a minute, what are IG, IG, uh, IgA, IgG, and IgM? So I, pre- <laughs> I appreciate you, you, uh, 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 you know, calming my uh, concerns about that. Um, but, you know, we've had so much contradictory information um, Dr. Kerry Mullis, the, the, the fellow who won the Nobel Prize for developing the PCR technique in the first place uh, and who sadly uh, passed away in August of 2019, just a few months before all this stuff came down on our heads. He said over and over and over again, this is not PCR is not a test to determine whether you're sick, whether you have a virus and for some reason, the CDC, the FDA, the World Health Organization, the NIH, 50 state health departments all said, oh, we don't care. We're going to pretend it is. And then, for some reason, months ago, the CDC said, uh, <clears throat> by the way, uh, at the uh, end of the year, we're going we're gonna to stop using the PCR. So you health care providers, you have to, you know, get ready to migrate to a different kind of uh, uh, test. What? What's going on with that? You know, I think I think what you bring what you bring to mind here is that we are getting so much bad information. People are so confused. That's the, that's what creates the fear. The confusion creates the fear. They don't know. They just say, "Well, let me just listen." They must know something there. Well, no one in that. so my organization, um, not mine, our organization, is. Um, the International Alliance of Physicians and Scientists. We have 16,000 physicians and scientists. The core group are guys from Harvard, Yale, MIT, Hopkins, Stanford. The core group that brought and attracted so many other doctors in are incredible scientists themselves and physicians. And so what's happened is we've been able to create an organization bigger than the NIH, the FDA, the CDC, and the WHO. So when we come and we say and we're talking in Arkansas, we're coming as a group to basically tell you that we know the science. We have incredible deep knowledge of the science. Um, we have a, a illustrious field of people that are contributing to everything that I'm going to be saying. And in general, what I want to do is we don't need this fear anymore. The whole PCR is actually fomenting the fear because like I said, people will be PCR positive, a little dead body parts in a sense, even going into, you know, two months, Later, they can be they can be like that. So this is really important to people to understand is that this is not about a virus. Now, we, and when I say that, what I mean is we can control the virus. 
people are sick, we can test them and we can find out if they're sick, that maybe they're sick with the flu. Maybe they're sick with rhinovirus. Maybe we're sick with other things besides COVID. So these things can be tested. At the end of the day, we can, we can treat the inflammation. We can treat the blood clotting. We can even treat the virus. So we have a lot of ways to attack this. So this is normal in medicine. We are always going to have disease coming our way, and we have ways to, to get this under control. I think that's my message. Okay. Um, one of the ways I've heard about is early treatment, and yet most hospitals, healthcare establishments, doctors, um, the whole healthcare establishment seems to be dead set against it. Um, I used to do a local talk radio show in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I heard from a lot of people who either went to hospital or had a loved one go to hospital um, with symptoms, tested positive for COVID, and the hospital wouldn't treat them. And uh, I actually asked the Surgeon General of the state of Arkansas when this came up, who, who he came on my show, and I said, look, um, why don't you put out a letter urging hospitals and doctors in the state of Arkansas, uh, you know, with a bully pulpit surgeon general of the state to actually treat people for COVID. And he said, well, you know, the hospital's doing a great job and the uh, doctors in Arkansas are really sharp and they're not sitting around waiting to hear from me. I'm like, but wait a minute. And, you know, this guy, um, I, I said, well, okay, you run the uh, the ER and the hospital in Russellville, Arkansas. What a standard operating procedure if somebody presents with COVID. Well, there is no standard operating procedure. We just leave it to the doctors case by case basis. And I'm thinking, okay, this is insane. Something is wrong here. Um, why do you think there, I mean, doctors that you know have gotten into trouble for saving people's lives with early treatment with stuff like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin? So you bring up a really good point. And if you look at this, let's take a back step here. Isn't it unbelievable that one of the most impactful things in our society, we don't hear from the NIH, the CDC, we don't hear from organizations like Harvard. No one's putting out a protocol that actually um, tells you what to do. Go home until you get more sick. Yeah, That's the recommendation. Now, of course, we do have the monoclonal antibodies. They've been wonderful. And now they've shut that spigot off. The Regeneron uh, monoclonals have done really well, um, and they basically are not allowing us to have any more of it. And I don't want to go into all the details, but just know that that doesn't make sense. We're still finding them to be effective, although they said they're not effective against a new variant, Omicron. Well, I can tell you that we don't. when we say this new variant, we don't. that doesn't come with a sign. That sequencing has to be done in a special laboratory. So when somebody comes into my office, right, I don't get all the data, like this is Omicron, this is Delta. I can tell you that I'm getting upper respiratory viral illness and that these protocols, like you're mentioning, it's not hard. I have a whole group of medicines. One, you do, you do it's a three-step process. One, you attack the virus early with what you can. And I always tell everybody, I don't need hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. I can win this disease 90-some-odd percent of the time without those drugs. Wow. Okay? So first of all, the, and this is there's there's this has come from 
basically a lot of experience now. I'm up to about 1,500 patients, sick patients treated, and a couple thousand prophylactic and non-so-sick patients that I dealt with that didn't need medicine. So not everybody needs medicine. But if you're sick, I recommend that you get medicine. But more importantly, you're dealing with, one, attacking the virus. Number two, the inflammation is what kills people, and the blood clotting is what kills people. So if you really understand that, then you, you this is, Every doctor deals with inflammation in their career. Every doctor deals with vascular problems. So these are normal things that all doctors in the ER, frontline doctors, deal with every day, inflammation and blood clotting. So every doctor you know should be able to attack and treat this virus and be able to help you before you get sick enough to go to the hospital. And we have protocols. Um, We're going to talk about some of that at the meeting. But the protocols are very simple. Um, We can train them. We have a person in... South Africa, I'm real close to the name's Dr. Shetty. He's treated over 7,500 patients now without hydroxychloroquine and without ivermectin in all but about 500 cases where he used those, those drugs. So we have great results um, without them because you understand the pathophysiology. Inflammation is killing people. Blood clotting is killing people. And that's, that's what you need to focus on once you get a patient who's real sick. Wow. Okay. Um so, you know, I know of, of folks, I mean, I, I think my son's life was saved by uh, getting uh, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and, and, a, uh, and a steroid. He was in pretty bad shape by the time that happened. He was, you know, hundreds of miles away, and I didn't realize. So I called the family doctor, and he got that prescribed, which in Florida you can do. Um, but you're saying that there are other things which you can do that you wouldn't even need to get to the point where you have to take hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. What, I mean, the, the monoclonal antibodies, is that one of the things that you're, you're recommending? The monoclonals, the monoclonals can be very helpful. Um, and just remember that the inflammation is the main thing. Steroids in the late phase, people, no one dies. If you ever notice, no one's dying in the first week. It's always in the second, third, fourth week. Yeah. That's when that inflammation, inflammatory phase kicks in right about day eight or nine. And that's how people, I tell my patients, I know you feel pretty good right now, but you know, you're at risk and you're, you may fall. I go, I don't know, but you may fall off a cliff in day eight or nine. And it's going to be like falling dominoes. It's, it's, you go down fast. And unfortunately it's tough to tell who's going to do that. I do know if people have some, some predisposing conditions like diabetes and, and, and asthma, they may be a little more at risk. So that's definitely true. So if I have those kind of patients, I definitely say I recommend them to get treated. But there's a lot of people who are just maybe 20 pounds overweight. They don't look that unhealthy, and they, and yet they do fall off a cliff at day eight or nine. So if you're sick, you're experiencing symptoms, now we pretty much go ahead and treat those patients. And cool. it's easy to treat. You can use many drugs, including ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, but there's a host of them. I don't want to go into them because it's a big list. Yeah. Phenofibrate, deuteroside. Um, spironolactone, uh, there's there's a, a, a azithromycin, of course, the ZPAC, which people think of as an antibiotic. It's an incredible immunomodulator. Macrolide antibiotics are incredible immunomodulatory agents. So um, I've been using it for scarring for actually 20 years. So my background and my, my core competency and background is in inflammation, scarring, and wound healing, and I developed an FDA-approved drug for that. So when it, when it came down to this last year, it was real easy for me to speak up because I understand inflammation really well. Right. We, I, I tried to mention that in the, in the, our introduction, but I don't know at what point my producer got you on hold, but yeah, you, you have a really remarkable 
uh, background in, in this sort of thing. Um, so let me ask you about the monoclonal antibodies, which uh, clearly uh, the press reports out there are that for some reason the Biden administration is trying to shut off access to them. Um, when I had the Surgeon General of the state of Arkansas on months back, he was talking about how wonderful they are for people to qualify. And, and I missed I missed the part I missed when he said for people who qualify. A few days later, a nurse told me, well, um, so if you have some kind of underlying comorbidity or if you're African-American or if you're over 65, then in the state of Arkansas, you get monoclonal antibodies. But, you know, if you're, say, 50 years old, Caucasian, been in remarkably healthy all your life, but now you got COVID, they're not going to give it to you. And I don't know if, if that is is a standard thing in, in other states, but in Arkansas, it's like you have to check off these particular boxes to even qualify for uh, the, the monoclonal antibodies. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Um, so in general, what this is a rationing of care, and I, and when you have unlimited supply, you don't have to ration the care. Okay. So I think in, in what they're doing is rationing the care, thinking who's going to be the most is going to be the most effective. When we think about the fact that we spent, I think, I don't know, Pfizer's made $127 billion this year, some incredible amount of money. You'd think that we could find a way to make these monoclonal antibodies and really ramp up the production. Um, and that way we could have them available to people like a 50-year-old person who might not have had other issues, but um, may be at risk for dying of COVID. And so I think um, this is a mistake. One of the things I can say is, we are rationing care, but this is not a smart move. Right, no question about that. And 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 why do you think it's set up that way? Um, you know, I we had a family friend in Little Rock, Arkansas, a few months ago, presented at a major hospital in Little Rock uh, with symptoms, tested positive for COVID, and they just sent her home. Said, uh, "Come back if you feel worse." Three or four days later, her daughter had to uh, drive her to the hospital. She was told at this big hospital in Little Rock, oh, sorry, you missed the three-day window of opportunity uh, to be treated with a therapeutic. We'll go ahead and admit you now. Eventually, they put her on a ventilator, and three weeks later, she was dead. I mean, why does this seem to be standard operating procedure? Why do we hear so many um, horror stories uh, uh, about this? And Because it seems to dovetail what you're talking about, about the rationing of care. This should have never have happened. I spoke up about this in March of 2020 when I saw it happening. I have like a background in drug design and development, so I basically could see that there were at least 10 different things that might work. And, of course, at the early stages, I'm looking through the literature and I'm making informed decisions that basically some of these things look promising. They should have been tried. They should still be used now because now we have all this evidence that's been accumulated. If anybody's interested, you can go to a website, go to c19study.com, and you'll see the whole list of medications that are available that can actually help in this disorder and that helps early in this disorder. So going without treatment makes absolutely zero sense. We know inflammation is a big part of this disease. We know blood clotting is a big part of this disease. If you get ahead of the curve on the inflammatory side, you are going to do so much better. Vitamin D is so important. Everybody on this call, everybody on this radio show should hear that vitamin D is incredibly important. If you have a vitamin D level below 50, 
that means you have um, some receptors that are not saturated. So your receptor saturation um, is real important. The more receptors that are saturated, the less likely you are to go into a cytokine storm. And I tell everybody, vitamin D is like the data analyst of your immune system. It looks at the at the at the immune system and says, "Is this a pathogen? Is this pollen? Is it a cancer cell? Is it self?" It helps your immune system develop efficiency and not go into a cytokine storm in a sense, in a blind way, attacking everything in sight. It's a more efficient system with vitamin D on board. Yeah, um, being in Arkansas, some months back, the governor of Arkansas, Governor Asa Hutchinson, did what he called a COVID-19 town hall, a little town called Siloam Springs in Arkansas, and people were yelling at him, complaining that folks who were sick with the uh, COVID would go to the hospital and they were denied therapeutics. And the governor seemed to think that that was just a crazy thing to say. He said, well, of course they're getting therapeutics when they go to the hospital. Isn't that right? And he turned to a hospital administrator who was there with him for the presentation. The hospital administrator said, no, not presently, sir. And Governor Hutchinson was like, what was that? I mean, the guy was speaking loud and clear. I mean, he, he clearly heard what he said. Um, and something so glaring as a hospital administrator admitting to a governor in front of an auditorium full of people, we do not give therapeutics to people who present to our hospital with COVID. Um, and the media doesn't really seem to be, um, that curious about why that would be. I mean, what are we to make of this? Uh, I'll go back to the same thing. It's clearly there's an intentional attempt. The messaging is an intentional attempt to limit early treatment. For what reason, I don't know. Yeah. But the, the facts are it's a viral disorder early, and then after day six and latest day eight, it becomes an inflammatory disease primarily and a blood clotting disease, and that's what people are dying of. So you attack the virus very early, Um Ivermectin is one of the drugs, uh, hydroxychloroquine, but there are several others. Now we have Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, two drugs coming from Merck and Pfizer um, that may be able to attack early. Uh, I can tell you Ivermectin is uh, heads and shoulders above both of those drugs for attacking the virus um, from a safety standpoint, but also from a, from a, a design standpoint in terms of tissue culture work, it's been proven to be superior. At the end of the day, I think the focus should be on the fact that the inflammatory phase and the blood clotting phase is where people are dying. There's no reason to deny treatment out of the hospital. There's none, zero. And it's insane because prednisone and steroids work incredibly well. And they've even had some states tell people you can only use those in the hospital as if when you magically step into the hospital, it works, but outside the hospital, they don't work. It's basically uh, it's in a place I never thought we would get to. You know, I've been practicing. I'm in my 60s. I've been practicing a long time. Doctors, when I was growing, being trained and groomed, basically would never have put up with this. But now doctors work for hospitals. Now doctors work for other companies. The corporate practice of medicine has prevented doctors from having they're too fearful. Most doctors are fearful to speak up at the end of the day. And it's like Stockholm Syndrome. They've basically been... They feel like they have to speak up and, 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 and help their provider that's basically paying their mortgage bills. So they go with the hospitals. It's horrible. 
It shouldn't happen. I hate to kind of go into that at all because at the end of the day, I just want to be positive. Don't be fearful of this disease. Why are they doing this? Look, I, I can't tell you. I know we have treatment. It's not that hard. Indeed. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Richard Urso, and he is with Global COVID Summit. Dot org, uh, which is going to be having a global COVID summit meeting at the Apostolic Church, Landers Road, North Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, this Saturday from 9 to 4, uh, if you're in the Arkansas area. And you can just go to globalcovidsummit.org and get your tickets for that. I'm going to be there. I, I hope that my Arkansas listeners will uh, will show up there also. So you got involved uh, in this whole area of medicine after a long, long career of medicine. You got involved in in all of this in March of 2020, uh, around the same time that uh, our president, at the behest of doctors Fauci and Burks, called for 15 days to slow the spread. Um, how did you wind up getting involved uh, in the fight against COVID? Well, I have a background in drug design. I got involved with people at Texas Medical Center. I'm on three drug company boards, and we all knew that something big was happening. So we talked pretty much every day in February about what, you know, what we might do to kind of alleviate um, the disease. And basically until we had, you know, the chance, basically later on, we figured, you know, vaccines will take a while to kind of come uh, to, uh, to where we can actually have them be useful and safe. So we knew we had to kind of do something. And so most of these diseases... Um, there's going to be a lot of research on any disease uh, in the same family. So coronavirus has been around over 60 years. Um, I looked at the viral literature. I had done work in a, in a viral lab on human papillomavirus. So I, I had some familiarity uh, not only with uh, inflammation scarring, but also with viruses. And so bottom line is like I, I it wasn't didn't take too long to figure out that there were things that were going to be useful, interferon, uh, Kaletra protease inhibitor. Now they're coming up with the protease inhibitor. That's the drug from uh, Pfizer right now. Um, some of these things would be potentially work and hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, they all came in uh, to the list of stuff that we looked and we ran through. And so when I started speaking up about it, I was quite shocked to find people telling me that we should just go home and don't worry about it. I just was completely shocked at the messaging coming from our, 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 we never go to the FDA, the CDC, or the NIH. We never go to the media. So I was getting messaging from the media, from the agencies to go home, and it just sound, it sounded absurd. I called the governor's office, um, and again, uh, they, they don't know. They're not doctors, but I urged them and said, let's try to get ahead of the curve here and not let this attack Texas um, because we have treatments that can work, and people need to know about the fact that we have something we could do. We shouldn't let people get on vents and ECMO. Um, we don't have to let people get to the point of, of suffering to where they're, they're at home doing nothing. It never made sense from the very, very, very beginning. I literally can tell you that that was the biggest problem I had was we were doing nothing. Doing nothing never made sense because we had, we've always dealt with inflammation. We've always dealt with viruses. We've always dealt with blood clotting. These are not new things. And we have lots of evidence in the literature. I brought stacks of papers to show people the evidence trail. And, and at some point, I helped found uh, Simone Gold, myself, and Taryn Clark founded America's Frontline Doctors. But that became more of a legal entity, so I reformed with another group, the International Alliance of Physicians and Scientists, this year 
basically to look at the research and basically do the job that the NIH, the CDC, and the FDA is not doing, which is to put out proper messaging about this disease. And, and that's what we're trying to do is let people know we have treatment. We don't have to have fear. We have treatment. Yeah. We, have, we can have success. Now, and, and that is wonderful news. Um, you know, you look at the, uh, the, the state in India of Uttar Pradesh, where apparently they started handing out ivermectin um, on a wholesale uh, basis. And, you know, they announced over there that they uh, basically eradicated COVID from this uh, state in India, which has something like 250 million people. Um, and so the, the layman, a guy like me, who Doc is just a nickname. I'm, I'm certainly not in the healthcare establishment. I look at something like that, and I look at uh, how the government and the healthcare establishment comes down like a ton of bricks on people talking about repurposed drugs like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin in the U.S. And I just, I'm sorry, but I, I just get to the point where I'm kind of come to the conclusion. Well, I guess it's follow the money, uh, and and that's a huge concern. Um, Dr. Anthony Fauci has a somewhat of a checkered past, somewhat of a spotty record, and yet the uh, this administration and and the last administration uh, treated him as if he were the uh, the avatar of wisdom when it comes to dealing with uh, with with viruses. Uh, he has been all over the map, contradicts himself on a regular basis. Um, does does it concern you that the Biden administration and the media still look to him as as a great font of wisdom? So, if you if you look at uh, Robert Kennedy's book, you'll see the real Anthony Fauci. It's a great read. In general, um, what I would say is it just goes to the greater problem: the messaging coming from the media, the messaging coming from Washington. They are controlled significantly, and so I would say I know people at the FDA, the NIH, and CDC. There's a lot of great, smart people there, but the messaging, which is he's the primary messenger, is a duplicitous message. And so what we're seeing is, you know, masks work, masks don't work. You know, we're seeing, um, you know, lots of things that just really don't make sense. Um, asymptomatic people don't spread disease. He said that clearly because that's the way we've all been trained. In all the data, all the science has shown that now all of a sudden asymptomatics are the major carriers of disease, which is which is not true, by the way. Um, so so this is all stuff that's coming from Washington. It's basically not data driven. And that's why you'll never hear them with a paper like here's the papers that come. Um, we have 146 papers showing that natural immunity is superior uh, to any other immunity, including vaccination, vaccine immunity. So these are things that um, they're data driven. And, and that's basically what we want to do is let people know, like, hey, if the vaccine is the greatest thing ever, we're for it, you know, but it, unfortunately it's not. So, I mean, you know, that data needs to come forward. Transparency, informed consent, that's all part of what we believe in as, as citizens of this country. So I think in general, he has been one of the major people that has been giving a false message um, and there's a great book if you want to read it. Uh, but that's been a big problem. It's it's part of his job, really, is to pr- produce a message that's a, more of a political message. It's not a data-driven message. And one of our goals is to actually give a data-driven message 
That's why we've been able to get people from Hopkins, from Harvard, from MIT, from from Stanford, from Yale to come forward and be part of the group because they just know it hurts us to see medicine go in this direction where people don't trust what's coming out of out of people's mouths that are supposed to be the experts. And and he do you really want a virologist to treat your inflammation and your blood clotting? I mean, people are dying of blood clotting. Why would a virologist be the best person for that? Why would a virologist be the best person for inflammation? They're not. So the virus is gone after six days. That's just a fact of, of this disease. And the cytokine storm and the blood clotting is what's killing people. Wow. Um, so can you... Um can you explain to my listeners what uh, the cytokine storm is and what the spike protein is? Well, those are two biggies. So cytokine storm is when your immune system overreacts. So in a sense, instead of having a nice, structured, ordered immune response, your immune system, like the neutrophils, they, they are kind of, um, they're a cell that uh, is basically like, you know, just, it kills things and they, they just, they go, they go on the rampage and unfortunately they kill good and bad things. And there's a way like vitamin D is really important to make sure those cells don't get too, um, too aggressive. And, and one of the important things to prevent this massive release of chemicals that create swelling and also lead to blood clotting. So when you get that many chemicals going, a lot of times these neutrophils, that do a lot of this work um, create blood clotting. Actually, they're called neutrophil extracellular traps. You don't need to remember that, but just no blood clotting. So the combination of chemical release over what you need creates the swelling and also creates a lot of the blood clotting that occurs in this disease. And that's one of the things that you have to really focus on in order to be successful in treating it. That's why remdesivir doesn't work in the hospital. For anybody who knows anybody who got remdesivir, the virus only, it's a one pony. The virus has to be replicating. So remdesivir has to be used in the first six days. And, and if you use it in the hospital at day 15 and 20, the virus is no longer replicating. So it can, all it can do is destroy the kidneys at that point. So this is a very wrong way approach to do medicine is to give a drug that can't possibly work at the wrong time. And this has been going on the whole time. I can't believe people are still getting remdesivir in the hospital. And the studies have shown it doesn't work killing people. Well, you know, Dr. Malone was telling Joe Rogan that hospitals get a financial incentive for chalking somebody up uh, as a COVID patient. They get a financial incentive uh, if somebody dies of COVID or, you know, somebody dies and they say, oh, yeah, it was from COVID. They get a financial incentive uh, putting somebody on a, on a ventilator. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's heartbreaking and it's maddening to consider the possibility that healthcare care uh, facilities uh, might be doing things for a financial incentive, uh, like giving somebody remdesivir um, too late in the game, uh, which winds up killing them. So... I think this is the ugly side of what we're dealing with. Unfortunately, we're seeing that a lot of people are being complicit and actually treating patients, and they really have no chance of, of surviving with remdesivir because it's actually going to just, all it's going to do is destroy kidneys. These nucleoside analogs, they kill viruses, they kill bacteria, they kill mitochondria, they kill normal cells, they kill cancer cells. And what you're hoping for is in the early phase when the virus is replicating that you're going to do... Um, 
from damage to the virus. But when you're at day 15 and 20, it cannot work. So what we're seeing here is that these protocols are being driven um, by hospital administrators. And if you, if you veer off of the, off of the protocol, right, it's, so let's say a doctor has a protocol instead of 40% death, it's going to be 20% death. Well, you won't know that on the first 10 patients. So in a sense, nobody wants to go off the protocol. So they don't want to be in trouble. And the hospital is geared towards making money, of course. And nobody has to draw these people a map to know that, hey, the hospital basically, it's not a small number. It's like forty to $50,000 more to follow the protocol. So it's big numbers. And, and people are afraid to buck the system. Obviously, obviously. I, um, I got you off track because I'd asked you uh, also about spike protein. And then I asked you another question before oh. you got to explaining oh, that. About that. Yeah, do you want me to talk about the spike protein? Uh, yes, sir. I think that it's important. The spike protein is the disease. So what I mean by that is COVID-19, 95% of what happens in the, in the viral disorder that you get naturally, 95% of the inflammation and 95% of the blood clotting is caused by the spike protein. The spike protein is only 12% of the virus. It's one of the main proteins. Um, there's a spike nucleocapsid, a membrane, an envelope, but overall there's about 30 proteins. And the spike is the main one that causes all the disease. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to have the spike be the main thing in the vaccine. There's other ways of doing it. There are other vaccines that are coming available that don't employ a total spike protein. They, they do the nucleocapsid. They do other portions, something called the receptor binding domain, and they don't have so much toxicity. So this is going to be a much smarter way as we go forward. And for people who don't know, lipid nanoparticles, which encapsulate these these messenger RNA, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, are like um, they're like I work with these for cancer for cancer drugs. These things are like garlic; they go everywhere. They go to the bone marrow. They go to the brain. They go everywhere that you maybe don't want these things to go. The ovaries. So these are these are things that as we go forward. People need to know that those lipid nanoparticle encapsulated messenger RNAs are basically going to places we really don't want them to go. We don't want it in the brain. We don't want it in the bone marrow. We don't want it in the ovaries. And yet it's going there. And that's why you're seeing all these complications occurring. So the spike protein itself is the major inflammatory compound of the virus. And when you get the vaccine, you're getting the major portion of what causes the toxicity. This has been proven in animal models. Wow. i tell you what. Um, speaking with Dr. Richard Urso, he's going to be one of the main speakers at the Global COVID Summit uh, coming up for our Arkansas listeners at the Apostolic Church, uh, Landers Road, North Little Rock, this Saturday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, and I would highly recommend... You join us. I'm planning to be there. Uh, GlobalCovidSummit.org. Uh, Dr. Urso, we appreciate you being on with us for so long. Uh, we feel like we've only scratched the surface, but uh, I'm sure we'll learn a lot more this Saturday. And, and we can't thank you enough. And, and we hope you have a great day. Well, Doc, I want to thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I hope everyone comes out. We've got a lot more to learn. I can tell you about some of the things about the genome and about the immune surveillance issues that are going to occur from the vaccine 
Uh, they're very interesting. And I think, I think the audience will really love hearing some of this stuff. And we, we really are giving a data driven message. I got off the topic a little bit and talked about some of the messaging and the fear. We're trying to let you know that we can, we can treat this disease. We can, um, we have some thoughts about the vaccine. There's no reason to have children get the vaccine. Um, and we could talk more about it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I look forward to seeing everybody there. Thank you so much, too, sir. You did a, a fantastic job. Uh, you guys are doing uh, God's work here, and, and, and we really appreciate you. God bless you. Have a great day, sir. God bless you, too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wow. Um, you know, an interview like that doesn't come along every day. And we're going to try to talk to uh, one or more of the other doctors who are scheduled to be at the Global COVID Summit uh, this Saturday um, in the days to come here uh, this week on the Doc Washburn Show. Uh, but that was Dr. Richard Urso. And um, I'm sure the, uh, the people listening live are probably going to share this with people. So as always... Um, you know, a few minutes after the live stream, we will have the uh, the podcast up. So, when when we think about the fact that we're lied to a lot by our government, sometimes we're even lied to by our healthcare establishment, and we go back a few years to two thousand nine when Nancy Pelosi was telling everybody, you just got to pass Obamacare to find out what's in it. And then once they passed it, the so-called Affordable Care Act, we found out what was in it, and the Affordable Care part was a lie. I mean, are you like me? Did the so-called Affordable Care Act make your health care more expensive? Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor? Now, if you answered yes to any of those questions, you need to go to a website called myfamilyhealthplan.com. When you do, you'll see the big, bold letters, affordable plans, save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no copays. And then the button, the beautiful button, which says schedule call now. You click on that button. You get book a free consultation with my friend Art Wilborn, who will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. And also, unlike some of those Obamacare plans, with MyFamilyHealthPlan.com, you get an insurance plan that doesn't force you to cover things like abortion which would violate your deeply held religious beliefs. This is an incredible deal. The website is myfamilyhealthplan.com. Affordable plans, save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co-pays. Just go to the website and schedule your free consultation and my buddy Art Wilborn will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. Save money on your insurance at myfamilyhealthplan.com. You'll be glad you did. Now, earlier on the Doc Washburn show, we were alluding to 
Joe Rogan's interview with Dr. Robert Malone. And thankfully, thankfully, we have kind of a a thread of cliff notes from Joe Rogan's podcast with Dr. Malone. I still definitely recommend you watching the whole episode. Um, they keep on taking it down off of YouTube and people keep on putting it back up. But, you know, you can watch it or listen to it at Spotify or uh, a number of other places. But independent journalist Jonathan Witt has put together kind of a, a cliff notes of what Dr. Malone talked about with Joe Rogan. I want to share that with you in the hope that you might glean some useful information out of that, A, and B, that you might go ahead and, and watch that podcast too. One of the things I pointed out on my New Year's Eve broadcast, we did late on, on New Year's e- evening, um, on the evening of New Year's Eve. I've been in radio since 1977. Got involved in talk radio in 1997. Always been very competitive. Um, when I was doing the local talk radio show in Little Rock, Arkansas, and there was a competing station across town that put Sean Hannity on up against me, the most listened to talk show host in America after the late great Rush left us. Uh, I was delighted every time the ratings would come out and we crushed Sean Hannity. So I'm very, very competitive. But when it comes to matters of of life and death, uh, my whole competitive worldview goes out the window, which is why here I am trying to get a foothold doing a live stream slash podcast. And I'm begging you, to go watch the top podcast guy, Joe Rogan, interview Dr. Robert Malone and Dr. Peter McCullough, for that matter. Um, because when it comes to matters of life and death, we're all on the same team, I would hope. Anyway, um, so here's the, uh, here, here are the cliff notes from Dr. Malone's interview with Joe Rogan. Uh, hat tip to journalist Jonathan Witt. Malone talks about becoming an MD and his early career working at the Salk Institute, specifically on RNA. He mentions his mRNA patients and his evolution from academic medicine into medical product development, clinical trials, drug development. Over the years, Dr. Malone says he's coordinated trials which have received billions with a B in government funding. He's worked with and knows many people at the CDC. He knows Anthony Fauci very well. Has many friends actually in the U.S. intelligence community. But now, he's a pariah. Joe Rogan brought up the fact that Twitter banned Dr. Malone just a few hours before he was scheduled to do the podcast with Joe Rogan. Dr. Malone says, He's probably the only person with his background without a conflict of interest. Says he earns no money from this, unlike others. Dr. Malone also mentions his deplatforming from LinkedIn for pointing out that the head of the news organization, Reuters, is also on the board of Pfizer. According to Dr. Malone, LinkedIn subsequently reinstated him 
and actually formally apologize for the man. He surmises why exactly he was banned from Twitter. COVID Care Alliance video regarding COVID vaccines and or a post about the World Economic Forum and their media management. Not completely understood or known at this time, which was the offending tweet. Dr. Malone discusses getting COVID in February 2020 and describes his lungs burning. Says he took famotidine. He describes a trial that he helped design using famotidine and celecoxib, I hope I pronounced that correctly, to treat SARS-CoV-2. Further says the FDA would not allow an ivermectin arm in the study despite data. Joe Rogan wants to know why there is obstruction of these drugs, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Dr. Malone describes the involvement of Rick Bright and Janet Woodcock in preventing the use of these drugs in the treatment of COVID. He won't speculate on the why, but he says they're wrong. Okay, now wait a minute. We bring a couple of names in here, and Joe Rogan asks, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who are these people? So let me try to explain this to you. Uh, Rick Bright is an American immunologist, vaccine researcher, public health official. He was the director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority from 2016 to 2020. Um, Janet Woodcock. Let me uh, grab this real quick because I remember Joe Rogan asking about her too. And Dr. Malone was saying, She's acting commissioner of the FDA. Okay? So again, powerful forces here who don't want the drugs that work against COVID to be used to save people's lives. So at some point in the interview, and it might have been right about this time, um, Joe Rogan asked Dr. Malone, why do you think this is? And Dr. Malone's like, well, now, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of lawyers and you're you're trying to get me into uh, looking in somebody's head, you know, to explain their motive. And I uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to tell you on that. And uh, Joe Rogan starts chuckling, says, I'll tell you what to say. Anyway. Dr. Malone tells Joe Rogan it is bizarre that Merck will come out against ivermectin. He reminds everybody billions of doses of both hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin have been safely administered, as well as both being on the World Health Organization's essential drugs list. Dr. Malone says he got the Chinese protocols in February 2020 and these included hydroxychloroquine. Says he gave this information to the U.S. government. Rogan mentions the apparent success of ivermectin and asks what happened in Uttar Pradesh, the state in the country of India, which has like 250 million people. High use of ivermectin and low deaths. Dr. Malone says he had long COVID and then also took the Moderna vaccine because at the time it was thought 
that it might help with his issue. Dr. Malone claims he had some adverse reactions to the vaccine, but despite these was, you know, ultimately turned out fine. The discussion briefly turned to natural immunity. Joe Rogan mentioned studies showing better effect of natural immunity versus these vaccines. Dr. Malone, of course, agreed. He discussed the Trusted News Initiative led by the BBC and their charge against misinformation slash disinformation and the use of the term anti-vaxxer to suppress anything against approved sources. Use that term by people like uh, Dr. Fauci and Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization. Then the discussion between Joe Rogan and Dr. Malone turned to cancel culture in the medical field. Previous, previous example with Dr. Fauci versus Dr. Duisberg and now leaked emails between Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins aiming to ridicule the great the founders of the Great Barrington Declaration. Okay, now at that point, of course, Joe Rogan has to ask, okay, what, uh, what actually is the Great Barrington Declaration? And I think I need to share that with you. Um, because it's a big deal as we wait for the tab to load on my computer. But anytime, anytime you have a situation like this where the governments and the healthcare establishments are actively trying to keep people from getting well, actively trying to stop conscientious doctors from saving people's lives. It's got to be addressed. Great Barrington Declaration, an infectious disease epidemiologists and public health, pardon me, as infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach we call focused protection. Focused protection. And the declaration is not that long. Here's what it says. That's basically the first line to it. They say, coming from both the left and right and around the world, we have devoted our careers to protecting people. Current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health. The results, to name a few, include lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, fewer cancer screenings, and deteriorating mental health, leading to greater excess mortality in years to come with the working class and younger members of society carrying the heaviest burden. Keeping students out of school is a grave injustice. Keeping these measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage with the underprivileged disproportionately harmed. Fortunately, our understanding of the virus is growing. We know the vulnerability to death from COVID-19 is more than a thousandfold higher in the old and infirm 
than the young. Indeed, for children, COVID-19 is less dangerous than many other harms, including influenza. As immunity builds in the population, the risk of infection to all, including the vulnerable, falls. We know that all populations will eventually reach herd immunity, i.e. the point at which the rate of new infections is stable, and that this can be assisted by, but is not dependent upon, a vaccine. Our goal should therefore be to minimize mortality and social harm until we reach herd herd immunity. The most compassionate approach that balances the risks and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection while better protecting those who are at highest risk. We call this focused protection. Adopting measures to protect the vulnerable should be the central aim of public health responses to COVID-19. By way of example, nursing homes should use staff with acquired immunity and perform frequent testing of other staff and all visitors. Staff rotation should be minimized. Retired people living at home should have groceries and other essentials delivered to their home. When possible, they should meet family members outside rather than inside. A comprehensive and detailed list of measures, including approaches to multi-generational households, can be implemented and is well within the scope and capability of public health professionals. Those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Simple hygiene measures, such as hand washing and staying home when sick, should be practiced by everyone to reduce the herd immunity threshold. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities such as sports should be resumed. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should open. Arts, music, sport, and other cultural activities should resume. People who are more at risk may participate if they wish, while society as a whole enjoys the protection conferred upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity. On October 4th, 2020, so this is like 15 months ago, this declaration was authored and signed in Great Barrington, United States, by, and then they have the list of folks who signed it. And so this is a big deal. This is a big deal. So, Dr. Robert Malone was talking to Joe Rogan on the podcast. I watch over the weekend. I hope you will also. And they start talking about the fact that there's a cancel culture in the medical field. Leaked emails between Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins aiming to ridicule the founders of that Great Barrington Declaration. Dr. Malone talked about Israel with high Pfizer vaccine uptake. They're up to dose four now in Israel. Double vaxxed and double boosted. Whereas the surrounding Palestinian territories with relatively low uptake without this discrepancy being reflected in death numbers. Says all cause mortality is the most reliable variable. In other words, uh, very high vaccine rate in Israel, and uh, they got COVID going through the roof there. For whatever reason, the people in the Palestinian areas, 
West Bank and Gaza are like, yeah, I don't want to get vaccinated. And the COVID's not as bad there. Crazy. On the podcast of Joe Rogan, Dr. Malone said the vaccine adverse event reporting system is unreliable, but it's the best we have. He says there are issues both ways. Death post-vaccine, not necessarily vaccine-caused, vaccine-correlated. However, we've had this system for decades, a vaccine adverse event reporting system, so we can look at trends and use aggregate value with larger sample size. Joe Rogan asked Dr. Malone about the financial incentive related to COVID deaths in hospitals. Dr. Malone admits he doesn't know the exact numbers, but says around $3,000 given to hospitals if someone is diagnosed with COVID. Further payments for putting people on ventilators and chalking up the deaths of people who do die to COVID. Joe Rogan and Dr. Malone discuss the possibility of someone with a gunshot wound or trauma who happens to test positive for COVID and then dies may be labeled as a COVID death. Dr. Malone says the FDA has not done their job, mentions data manipulation. In the case of Maddie DeGaray, which was allegedly reported as gastric distress by Pfizer in their trial, when it's claimed she had a seizure and is now wheelchair-bound at the age of 13. Dr. Malone says there are all kinds of ways to craft clinical trials and study reports to hide the bad stuff and highlight the good stuff. He says what gets reported is often biased by expected outcomes and tricks of data, financial incentives to make the bad stuff go away. Dr. Malone says... Thomson Reuters, the big press agency, like AP or UPI Reuters, is the fact checker of choice of Twitter, and they are in turn tied to Pfizer. This in part decides what is allowed to be discussed on Twitter. Joe Rogan and Dr. Malone discussed the attacks on physicians. They highlighted cases of Peter McCullough and Kirk Milhone. Now, Kirk Milhone is one of the doctors who's also going to be at the Global COVID Summit in North Little Rock, Arkansas, this Saturday for my uh, listeners in Arkansas. Dr. Malone talked about the attack against him to have his license removed based on tweets and the article in the Atlantic magazine written about him, which claims that he killed millions of people. Really? Really? So they put Dr. Malone in the same category with Fauci. Oh, that's odd. Joe Rogan goes back to the statistics around vaccine-related myocarditis. Dr. Malone says data shows incidents of up to 1 in 2,700 of myocarditis in boys after being vaccinated. He claims that his myocarditis is different, but he says... No data also says other adverse effects like uh, dysmenorrhea. Not sure what that means. I can look it up. No, I'll look it up. I'll look it up. I'll look it up. Uh, Dysmenorrhea. What in the world? I love learning new words, don't you? 
So we'll um, right click, right click, and copy and paste it over here. Oh my goodness! Painful menstruation, typically involving abdominal cramps. Oh my goodness, that's uh, that's rough. Dr. Malone discusses concerns around fertility for people who've been vaccinated because of what he says are lipids, lipid nanoparticles, with a potential to affect the ovaries. Now, I believe that um, in our interview with uh, Dr. Richard Urso, he brought that up a few minutes ago, with the potential to affect the ovaries, also talks about the spike protein and its ability to cause blood clots, regardless of whether from virus or vaccine. Extensive discussion between Joe Rogan and Dr. Malone about effects on ACEII receptors and disruption of the blood-brain barrier by the spike protein. Joe Rogan asks if the spike from the vaccines is different than the spike from the virus. Dr. Malone says yes, but we don't know if the difference actually matters. Dr. Malone says the job of the drug companies to prove that their spike vaccine created spike is not toxic. Joe Rogan asks why so many people take the vaccine and have no adverse effects at all. Dr. Malone explains it with the response curve due to phenotypic genetic differences. He goes on to mention evidence that people who are diabetic or have high blood sugar levels seem to be more greatly affected by these spike side effects from the vaccines. This may be part of the explanation for many people being able to shrug off spike adverse effects, but not others. Dr. Malone talks about T-cells. says we don't know for sure what these vaccines are doing to our T-cells. Mentions cancer risks, but cautions against lack of data. Also discusses some evidence for increased risk of illness after being vaccinated for a period of time. Joe Rogan asks Dr. Malone about the vaccine efficacy window. Malone says it seems to be ever shrinking and goes on to mention that in some studies, like one in Denmark, there's a negative efficacy. In other words, you have a higher risk of being affected shown with increasing doses. So the more boosters you get, the more likely you're going to get the COVID. Says this is specific to Omicron. Now, Dr. Malone says we're administering a mismatched vaccine and driving the B and T memory cells toward a virus which no longer exists says his hypothesis for the poor validity of the vaccines on this basis is called original antigenic sin. Malone talks about high high pathogenicity and low pathogenicity, H1N1, to describe in part the differences between other COVID variants and Omicron. Further discusses the very high R number, number of people infected by one person with a pathogen of Omicron. And then Malone says, our government is out of control on this. They are lawless. They completely disregard bioethics. 
And these mandates of an experimental vaccine are explicitly illegal. They're explicitly inconsistent with the Nuremberg Code. Joe Rogan brings them back to talk about Omicron. Dr. Malone talks about the alarmist models of the Imperial College out of the UK, which he says the press just ran with. They talk about U.S. hospital cases and the likely remaining predominance of Delta in those instances. Dr. Malone said there's a perverse incentive to amplify the fear porn to maintain the state of emergency. Withholding of monoclonal antibodies and early treatment described as inexplicable. It's inexplicable they withhold monoclonal antibodies. It's inexplicable that they withhold early treatment. He says, is it incompetence or is it malevolence? Dr. Malone raises the lack of reporting on effectiveness of lockdown strategies as well as gain-of-function research and says we're in an environment in which truth and consequences are fungible. Joe Rogan says he feels compelled to have people on because of the censorship. Dr. Malone says Pfizer is one of the most criminal pharmaceutical organizations in the world based on their past history and fines. He says it's actually a cost-benefit analysis in the pharmaceutical industry about misbehavior, and they are not grounded in any sort of ethical principles. Joe Rogan and Dr. Malone discuss the mass formation psychosis. I brought that up with our guest earlier, Dr. Richard Urso. Rogan and Malone discuss the mass formation psychosis taking place globally. Quite a soft wind, pardon me, quite a soft wind down to the end of the show, but essentially a call for less tribalism, more openness to discussion, and an end to censorship. A warning from both Joe Rogan and Dr. Malone about the potential for an implementation of a social credit scoring system as an end point for all of this. Dr. Malone reemphasizes the effect of what we've done to children, including, he says, drops in IQ from masks and desocialization. Joe Rogan asks why the vaccine is dangerous to children. Malone says androgens have a role to play regarding effect in male children. Also says that he's not convinced that there's a discrepancy between kids and adults, cites potential reporting bias. So an interesting uh, podcast, if a bit meandering at times, Dr. Malone might be wrong about stuff, or perhaps he's right, but he doesn't come across as a nut job or someone dangerous in any way. Still quite fascinating that Twitter banned him for reasons they don't want to elucidate. So that's the Cliff's Notes on Dr. Malone's podcast interview with Joe Rogan. Hat tip to uh, Jonathan Witt, acclaimed journalist over there, who uh, uh, basically did the uh, the yeoman's work of putting that together on Twitter. And he hasn't been banned yet. So that's good. That's good. He hasn't been banned yet. Um, okay, somebody um, somebody sent me a link here on the Podbean app. 40% increase in deaths over last year in life insurance claims. Really? Hang on, we got to... We got to copy that 
and open it up over here and see what that's all about. I don't ordinarily do that in the middle of a show. Okay, it takes us to the centersquare.com. Um, and the centersquare.com is, um, oh, I see, launched um, about three years ago to fulfill the need for high-quality state house and statewide news across the U.S. So it is a, a, a news website. And they've got this article, Indiana Life Insurance CEO says deaths are up 40% among people ages 18 to 64. Oh, my goodness. The insurance company is called One America. And the CEO of that, or of that company says the death rate is up a stunning 40% for pre-pandemic levels among working-age people. One America CEO Scott Davison said during an online news conference this past week, we're seeing right now the highest death rates we've seen in the history of this business, not just at One America. The data is consistent across every player in that business. One America is a $100 billion insurance company that has had its headquarters in Indianapolis since 1877. The company has approximately 2,400 employees, sells life insurance, including group life, to employers in Indiana. Their CEO, Davison, said the increase in deaths represents huge, huge numbers. And it's not elderly people who are dying, but primarily working age people, 18 to 64, who are the employees of companies that have group life insurance plans through One America. He said, and what we saw just in third quarter, we're seeing it continue into fourth quarter, is that death rates are up 40% over what they were pre-pandemic. Just to give you an idea of how bad that is. A three sigma or a one in 200 year catastrophe would be 10% increase over pre, pre pandemic. So 40% increase is just unheard of. Davidson was one of several business leaders who spoke during the virtual news conference on December 30th. It was organized by the Indiana Chamber of Commerce. He said most of the claims for deaths being filed are not classified as COVID 19 deaths. Interesting. He says, what the data is showing to us is that the deaths that are being reported as COVID deaths greatly understate the actual death losses among working age people from the pandemic. It may not all be COVID on their death certificate, but deaths are up just huge, huge numbers. He said at the same time, the company is seeing an uptick in disability claims, saying at first it was short-term disability claims, and now the increase is in long-term disability claims. He said, for One America, the company CEO of, we expect the costs of this are going to be well over $100 million. And this is our smallest business, so it's having a huge impact on that. He said, the costs will be passed on to employers purchasing group life insurance policies who will have to pay higher premiums. The CDC weekly death counts, which reflect the information on death certificates and so have a lag of up to eight weeks or longer, show that for the week ending November 6, 2021, there are far fewer deaths from COVID-19 in Indiana compared to a year earlier, but a lot more deaths from other causes. These deaths were for people of all ages, however, while the information referenced by One America CEO Davison 
was for working age people who are employees of businesses with group life insurance policies. Yeah. Well, you know, here's the deal. You know, you wonder, you wonder how many of these deaths are vaccine related, right? You wonder. Man, oh man. Now, the same gentleman who posted that link on the Podbean app here said this last year, I've had six family members die from COVID-19. All six of them were fully vaccinated. Four were in a local hospital and died. Oh, my goodness. So sorry for your loss. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got another link here. We got to, we got to, this is kind of like uh, trying to change the tires on a 57 Chevy doing uh, 55 miles an hour down uh, I-40 between Little Rock and Memphis, but we got to, like I say, it's very unusual that, that people send me links on the Podbean app and I go to them in real time. Oh, I see. This is from uh, November 22nd. News released from uh, Homeland Security of all places, all right? Department of Homeland Security Small Business Innovation Research Program released 11 topics for the new Small Business Innovation Research Pre-solicitation, during this period, small businesses can review topics and ask clarifying technical questions regarding the topic requirements. Now, what does Homeland Security have to do with small business? One of them is mass fatality tracking system. Well, that's, that's real sweet. You know, I just think maybe the federal government's too big. Maybe. If Homeland Security has untold millions for a small business section. Another comment here on the Podbean app. Wife and I had COVID earlier this year. Wife likened it to a sinus infection at first. Later on, being asthmatic, she couldn't breathe and couldn't even get breath enough to take her inhaler. Her pulmonologist later was surprised she wasn't hospitalized. Maybe a good thing she wasn't. My symptoms, however, were a headache and extreme, extreme exhaustion. Says wife refuses to take the vaccine because of extreme allergies. Oh, I would refuse to take the vaccine because I think it's dangerous. And some people do just fine with it, but I. what if I'm not one of those? Yeah, Homeland Security has a mass casualty tracking program. That's great. Oh, my goodness. Another gentleman here on the Podbean app says, my niece died of blood clots, and she was vaccinated. I'm so sorry for your loss, sir. He says, I took my horse paste, zinc, vitamin D, quinine, tonic water, was over in three days. Son wouldn't listen to me. He ended up in the ER, and, and we nearly lost him. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, 
What are the odds that perhaps from now on your son will listen to you? See, a lot of people, when they're young, think their parents are stupid. And then by the time they hit like maybe 30, 35 years old, their parents all of a sudden seem to be actually brilliant. Just a thought. Just a thought. All right. Um, going back to go back to um, Doctor Malone. Fascinating little uh, thread here by the great Stacy Rudin over on Twitter. She says in his interview with Joe Rogan. Dr. Malone said that the woke writer from Atlantic Magazine who smeared him was obsessed with the question, what are you getting for doing this? Who is paying you? Dr. Malone said, I do it because it's the right thing to do. And the writer just couldn't believe that, couldn't wrap his mind around that concept. Stacy Rudin says, this brought back to mind my first encounters with pro-lockdown liberals in early March 2020. These people... Well, I had considered friends were furious with me and very stuck on this point. I don't understand what you get by doing this, you know, by being against the lockdowns. They couldn't comprehend the moral imperative. Isn't that crazy? Dr. Dr. McCullough is $150,000 in the hole, defending his medical license. Scott Atlas was smeared by a hundred of his colleagues at Stanford. Most of us taking the contrary view have had a tough ride, and we made zero dollars out of it. Yet people believe the mainstream media. This has always amazed me. And uh, she wrote about it. She's got an article where she wrote about it. Fascinating. The article is entitled, Who Deserves Your Trust in the COVID Debate? And, see, the liberals want to be, they want to be with the in crowd. And when you, when you buck the um, accepted accepted narrative, they're, they're trying to figure out, well, who's paying you to do this? They can't wrap their mind around well, I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. Stacy Rudin over at Twitter continues. She says, it says a lot about the mindset of people like that writer with the Atlantic magazine that he cannot comprehend a selfless moral act. He can't believe another human being would do such a thing, act against his or her own interest for the sake of the greater good. His own behavior is motivated by the accrual of power in this moment. This is why he has to be part of the majority in an event like COVID. He needs to stay close to power because that is the safest and sets him up optimally to succeed. Shallowly speaking, he will be inherently miserable eventually, but will cope and try to ignore it. We can see the results of a society filled with people like pathological narcissists, this very clearly now. The geographical areas that are more power-obsessed can't get rid of COVID. 
They need to virtue signal and form groups and stay cool because they're empty inside for the precise reason that they cannot stand alone as complete individuals like Dr. McCullough, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Martin Kulldorff, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya can and do. All of their actions are focused on the short-term accrual of status, people like the liberal media types, so they will never realize how to fix their misery. Deeper characters like those we just mentioned, Dr. McCullough and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and that crew, will achieve the status of greatness over the long term, but they are not motivated by that. It is inherent to greatness not to be motivated by being great. The truly great risk everything for conviction and idea. The triumph of the conviction creates the happiness, not the achievement of greatness. People are chasing the wrong thing when they chase status for status' sake. It doesn't work. It's the doing hard, very things, taking hits, enduring scorn and ridicule and staying upright. That makes a person fulfilled. She says, I guarantee the apparent losers in the COVID war are happier than the apparent winners. So this writer from the Atlantic magazine, of whom Dr. Malone speaks, is hopelessly lost. He'll live in a a shallow life, chasing shiny things and be forgotten. Whereas Dr. Malone may lose the battle, may maybe even lose the war. But he will know at the end of the day that he did so daring greatly. He's actually doing things, taking risks, throwing punches in the arena. He's living. He's free. No one defines him but himself. That's what we all get. We anti-lockdowners. We're still free. If we lose this fight, along with our freedom, at least we haven't given it up without a fight. They can never take away our ability to look ourselves in the mirror and know what we tried. There's a spiritual chasm between somebody like Dr. Malone and his detractor from the Atlantic magazine. That chasm is dictating the global COVID disaster until people re-examine their misplaced trust and motivations behind their own actions, status, comfort, we remain stuck. That's great. That's a great uh, great thread there from uh, great Stacy Rudin over at uh, Twitter. Now, we talk about health care. And we scratch our heads at the role that money and the love of money takes in denying people the care that they need to save their lives when they get the Wu flu, the China virus. But there is a secret in healthcare that is even less well known than hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. As a matter of fact, it's the biggest. It's the best-kept secret in American healthcare, And that is the secret of upper cervical care. In other words, the top of your spinal column. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, the C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. Now, 
if your atlas gets out of alignment, which is pretty easy to do, you can wind up with migraines, neck pain, back pain, restless leg syndrome, vertigo, um, breathing issues, all kinds of different things. Now, there's a way to deal with it. Um, these are doctors who specialize in upper cervical care. Some are even called atlas orthogonal practitioners, but upper cervical care nonetheless. These are doctors who, when you call and get a free consultation, you come in, they'll x-ray your head and your neck to see if your atlas is out of alignment. If it is, they adjust your atlas and people are seeing remarkable, uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's too great to say miraculous results. I know my wife did. So, she was still my fiance at the time. We had gotten back from a trip to visit family in Panama City, Florida. Got back to Little Rock, Arkansas. It was New Year's Eve of 2015. I tried to call her all day long. Couldn't reach her. Finally, one of her adult children sent me a private message on Facebook said, uh, Doc, Mama woke up and couldn't catch her breath this morning, and Jason's girlfriend had to drive her 80 miles an hour to the ER at Badris Medical Center. She's in a medically induced coma. I was, I was like, medically induced? What? And that's how I found out what that means, which is they had to put her under for a while to try to stabilize her. She's in the hospital for nine days, the first two and a half of which she was in a medically induced coma. When she got out, as soon as I could, I took her to the Arkansas Upper Circle Center, and lo and behold, of course, she needed to get her atlas adjusted. And once she did, almost immediately, she was telling me, Doc, this is crazy. The big toe on my left foot has felt numb and tingly for years. Now it feels normal. That afternoon, she texted me while I was doing my uh, local radio talk show in Little Rock, Arkansas. She said, hey, guess what, Doc? I don't have my regular daily backache. A few days later, she said, you know what? I have not had a headache since I got my atlas adjusted at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center. I said, well, how often are you used to having headaches? She said, oh, every day. These folks have helped me, my wife, a lot of people that we know. I've been under this kind of care since I lived in Brunswick, Georgia, years and years ago, and then in Panama City, Florida, and now in central Arkansas. So if you're in central Arkansas and you want to find out, because if your atlas is out of alignment, I forgot to mention, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, which tends to restrict your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, circulatory system, yes, even your digestive system. So if you're thinking, well, I wonder if getting my atlas adjusted could help with my fill-in-the-blank. Could. One way to find out, if you're in central Arkansas, call the Arkansas Upper Cervical Cervical Center at 501-279-2009 for a free consultation. 
to see if you need to get your athletes adjusted. If you're outside central Arkansas, they have a website where you might be able to find a doctor close to you who does what they do. The website is turnmypoweron.com. Whether you're in central Arkansas or one of the other 49 states where people listen to Doc Washburn show, I highly recommend you go to turnmypoweron.com to find a doctor close to you. You'll be glad you did. We, we know so many people, so many people who have done exactly that. Exactly that. So, um, getting a lot of, lot of messages on the Podbean app. People encouraging each other to take the vitamin D, take the zinc, take the quercetin. And um, ivermectin, ivermectin, if you can get it, now, I'm sure a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of questions. And again, if you're anywhere near central Arkansas, or if you, if you don't mind uh, traveling, I would highly recommend you go to Global COVID summit.org and get your tickets for the global COVID summit in North Little Rock this Saturday. Um, somebody was saying you get the horse, horse paste ivermectin at a local feed store. You know, I believe that one of the doctors who's going to be at the global COVID summit is a local doctor who will prescribe you ivermectin, the human kind. I mean, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm told that the um, the horse paste kind works if you know the right, you know, you don't want to overdo it, but if, if you know the right um, um, amount to take for your weight. Um, okay, my uh, producer is saying here, liquid ivermectin is on Amazon at various veterinarian supply companies. Well, you know, I mean, I would, uh, I'd rather get the human kind if I could, and, and I did. Well, somebody else here saying, if you request hydroxychloroquine for arthritis, you can get the prescription. Oh, I didn't know it. I didn't know that um, the people use it for for arthritis. What I do know is that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are both on the list of essential drugs on the World Health Organization's website, even as the powers that be try to shut it down. What does that tell you? 
What did I tell you? So I shared a thread the other day by the great uh, Yossi Gestetner over on Twitter. And he has added to the thread in the last couple of days. And I'm afraid if I if I start it now, I don't know, will I have time to get it all in? I might. Let's give it a shot. I think you need to hear the whole thing. He says, I know I'm talking here mostly to the four walls, but as an exercise, I'll tweet these thoughts, and if you're one of the few to read it, thank you. We're often told to trust the science. But the science of trust is to earn it. You can't force people to trust you. And oh, by the way, by the way, if I may, if I may, this uh, this thread of tweets from Yossi Gostetner, who is a great, great journalist, whose works have appeared all over the place, it's so important that I think it's time to... We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Yes, indeed. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, a big old car dealership in the middle of the United States of America. They believe in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to online and have it delivered to your front door anywhere. In the continental United States of America. All right, so here's what Yossi Gestetner is saying in today's Tweet of the Day, brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Actually, today's Thread of the Day. He says, We're often told to trust the science, but the science of trust is to earn it. You can't force people to trust you. In recent years, however, little has been done to earn the public's trust. For starters... There is no the science as science is a developing thing. What's more to claim the science is settled is strange as science as a topic is about constant study. How can it be settled? Besides, if you have the numbers, show it. Why do you need to ask for people to trust it? Furthermore, many people quote-unquote trust the science well, they just distrust your policy solutions to the science and your motives behind the policies that you want to impose on the public. Lack of trust building has been ongoing during the COVID-19 outbreak. For starters, how many times have you seen Dr. Scott Gottlieb referred to in media only or mainly with the impartial sounding title of former FDA commissioner, without being told that he is actually on the board of Pfizer. He says, I don't mind Scott earning a living and selling books from his past work, but when media, the alleged anchors of truth, propagandize you on such basic stuff, how do you want the public to trust? I know that some shows or articles also add that Scott is on Pfizer's board but it's not on all TV appearances and news articles, and his former work is mostly in the lead. As a former FDA commissioner, you assume he has different interests or obligations than as a board member of a COVID-19 producer 
but you keep getting his former title mostly. Also, Dr. Gottlieb joined Pfizer's board a few months after leaving his FDA post. Similar goes for Trump's last FDA commissioner, Stephen Hahn, who months after leaving his post took a job with a company that launched Moderna. As humans, the opinion of current or senior FDA, CDC staffers on pharmaceutical issues likely gets blurred by the project, uh, likely gets uh, blurred by the prospect of prestigious publicity-generating well-paying jobs in pharma, big pharma, waiting for them within months of leaving government. Yeah, you want us to trust blindfolded? Please. In addition to being led by their former FDA title, and often no mention of their current work, few if any TV hosts or news articles tell you how soon after their FDA jobs, Hahn and Gottlieb joined these companies, but trust, trust in and by those health reporters is demanded. Then there's gaslighting that anyone who focuses a minute can see. In the early months of COVID, there was a debate if hydroxychloroquine helps reduce the impact of COVID if given early. Again, helps reduce impact. Not a guarantee, not a cure, and if given early, not given late. But to debunk this, we were flooded with rapid studies that claim hydroxychloroquine helps little if given in hospital, and therefore let's LOL at the claim that hydroxychloroquine can help when given early. I don't know if or how much it helps, but did you get the sleight of hand? Early use got debunked by late use studies. Oh, but you got to trust them. Got to trust them. Anthony Fauci's agency pulled an early use study of hydroxychloroquine in June 2020 because it could not find more than 20 people for the study. How do you not find more than 20 people? How do you not study this while claiming on TV it has little use? Oh, you got to trust him. Got to trust him. Basically, and he's got the, he's got the screen grabs to the to the news article there. Basically, many doctors claimed that if given early, hydroxychloroquine can help. Not a cure per se, but it can help. Instead of studying it and throwing it at COVID to mitigate its impact, for what it's worth, we got rapid studies about late use. Fauci's agency pulled its studies. Doctors shunned. People's social media suspended. Another place of distrust during the COVID-19 pandemic was the encouragement of and response to protests for George Floyd in May and June of 2020. For months, we were told that life needs to be slowed down or even shut down to slow the spread. But when the George Floyd protest took off, without distancing and people singing and shouting in close proximity to each other, elected and government officials backed those protests. While kids who are the lowest age risk group for COVID suffering were out of schools, patients left alone at hospitals, and funerals delayed. Fauci, who opined about church singing and other things that needed to stop, was asked about the protests at a congressional hearing by Jim Jordan in July 2020. But for a sustained five minutes, Fauci refused to say that those protests should not happen. You don't want you singing in church, but protesting over George Floyd, singing out there, 
close to each other, that's fine. A more egregious instance of trust busting, especially surrounding COVID-19, was the announcement on December 27th from the CDC that isolation can be cut from 10 days to 5 days in asymptomatic people. The CDC wrote that the change is motivated by science. Right after seeing the news that it was motivated by science, I tweeted, who ran the study? What are the results? Why the change now and not 6 to 12 to 18 months ago? Well, let's see what Fauci said about it. He's got a little screenshot here from an article from CNBC. Following the announcement from the FDA that you only have to isolate for five days instead of 10 days, Dr. Anthony Fauci, chief medical advisor of Joe Biden, spoke with journalists about the CDC's reasons for updating the recommendations. He told CNN's Jim Acosta, quote, The reason is that with the sheer volume of new cases that we're having and that we expect to continue with Omicron, one of the things we want to be careful of is that we don't have so many people out. I mean, obviously, if you have symptoms, you should be out. But if you're asymptomatic and you're infected, we want to get people back to jobs, particularly those with essential jobs, to keep our society running smoothly. Oh, really? Fauci says the reason for the change is that with the sheer volume of new cases we're having and that we expect to continue with Omicron, one of the things we don't, one of the things we want to be careful of is that we don't want to have so many people out of work. Well, this isn't just that Fauci's reasoning about jobs and society contradicts the CDC's reasoning, which is the science that we need to trust. It's much worse on many levels. It shows that the allegedly science-motivated CDC can change rules and suddenly for economic reasons. It shows that for 21 months, we were supposed to abide by a rule that could have long been changed if the CDC and or Fauci decided that the economy is more important than the risk of spread by asymptomatic people. Imagine the impact on the elections if that had been changed in, say, oh, I don't know, August 2020. It shows that those who were shunned and banned for yelling against locking asymptomatic people up for 14 days at a point. In fact, early in the outbreak, Fauci said that never in such outbreaks were asymptomatic people the driver of spread. Yet people were banned for saying exactly that. Here's Fauci early on. I guess I got to turn it up. Sorry about that. Here's Fauci early on. But the one thing historically people need to realize that even if there is some asymptomatic transmission in all the history of respiratory born viruses of any type, asymptomatic transmission has never been the driver of outbreaks. The driver of outbreaks is always a symptomatic person. Even if there's a rare asymptomatic person that might transmit, an epidemic is not driven by asymptomatic carriers. Okay, but people got um, banned from social media for saying that later on. Then, there's this from December 29, 2021. CDC removes the rule to test at the end of isolation because some people's PCR tests could be positive 12 weeks after infection, meaning that it's an irrelevant positive. You get that? It's almost like maybe somebody should listen to the guy who developed PCR technique in the first place, said it was not a test to see whether you're sick or have a virus or not. 
the latest makes you ask why this was not known 6, 12, 18 months earlier. Or maybe it was known, yet rules were still kept in place at the levels that they were kept due to other reasons. Oh, conspiracies, huh? Look, name-calling and dismissing glaring confusions by saying we're conspiracy theorists doesn't build trust. The reasons for isolation being cut from 10 days to 5 days, CDC statement said last week the change is motivated by science. Fauci on Tuesday, the next day, said society needs to function. The CDC director said the next day, science, and because people were anyway ignoring the guidelines. Yeah, 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 but let's trust them. All right, here's Rochelle Wilinski, CDC director on CNN last week. The question, if this is based on science that you already had at the CDC, why didn't you make this change sooner than this week? Well, so our guidance was conservative before. It has said 10 days of isolation. But in the context of the fact that we were going to have so many more cases, many of those would be asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. People would feel well enough to be at work. They would not necessarily tolerate being home and that they may not comply with being home. This was the moment that we needed to make that decision and those changes. Okay, so you made it based on science because people might not comply. That seems like two different things. Now, let me just remind you, as we get close to uh, two hours of this thing, if Podbean cuts off the uh, the live stream, you can hear the rest of the show uh, as soon as we upload the uh, the podcast. But going on with the, um, the thread here from Yossi Gest- Gestetner, CDC guidelines now say you can leave quarantine if your symptoms are resolving as defined by not having fever for 24 hours, days after saying that only asymptomatic people can leave. A change that had different explanations on why it was made. The rapidly changing rules and the changing reasons are not the only things that destroy people's trust. The current rule of symptoms are resolving was made without the page saying on top that this is a change from the initial release. Oh, a stealth edit. Oh, great. Another piece of trust busting is the disregard for healthy living in the context of COVID's impact. Accounts have been suspended from social media for saying that living healthier is a plus, not a guarantee, but a plus. Pre-COVID, though, this was normal talk. Here's Fauci in 2019 happy to see you and the best way for me to prevent getting an infectious disease and having to have you as my doctor is what um wearing a mask no um, no no no. you do that um (laughs) somebody's i can see they're ready to sneeze or cough walk away you avoid all the paranoid aspects and do something positive a good diet b you don't smoke i know i know you don't drink at least not very much, so that's pretty good. Get some exercise. I know that you don't get as much exercise as you should. That's correct. Get good sleep. I think that the normal, low-tech, healthy things are the best thing that you can do, David, is stay healthy. All right, well, I'm going to try to do that, and hopefully when I next see you, I will be even healthier than I am today. Uh, I would imagine you would be, and I look forward to that. That's Fauci in 2019 talking to a guy named David Rubenstein. All the things Fauci told this guy in 2019 
were completely ignored by Fauci and everybody else on the uh, on the Wu flu team. Not a word of that in 2020, 20, uh, 2021, not a word. Now, Yossi Gestetner continues here. When asked in 2019 how to prevent getting an infectious disease in need of doctor care, Fauci lists healthy living items such as good diet, exercise, sleep, and avoiding alcohol and smoking. You get booted off social media for saying that in the context of COVID-19, though. Choking off any talk of health in context of helping mitigate the impact of coronavirus is done despite the fact that an overwhelming majority of COVID deaths were in very elderly people and or people with other health issues, including issues caused or made worse by poor life choices. There's also zero focus on care once infected. Of the 280 tweets and retweets from CDC, December 2021, not one mentioned care such as monoclonal antibodies. One tweet said what to do if infected with a link that instructed isolation, but nothing more. No treatment, no therapeutic, just isolation. And that is in December of 2021. In September 2020, Fauci said, if you're deficient in vitamin D, that does have an impact on your susceptibility to infection, so I would not mind recommending, and I do it myself, taking vitamin D supplements. Okay, so why don't he and the director of the CDC say or tweet that on a regular basis? In the same interview, September 2020, Fauci said that vitamin C is a good antioxidant. So if people want to take a gram or two at the most of vitamin C, that would be fine. He rarely says this, though. Why? Big Big Tech has dropped people for pushing the same. Why? Oh, but you got to trust them. He says, I want to wind this thread down because it's long, and thank you to all those who read until here and to those who shared it, but let me raise a final gaslighting point. It keeps being made by officials and pundits in a way that treats the public as dumb idiots. Some people oppose vaccine mandates despite taking the vaccines. Others support mandates for adults, especially for seniors, but reject it for children. In almost two years of data, over 66,000 kids in the U.S. died of all causes. Only 678 were COVID-related. That's 1% of childhood deaths. As a counter to rejecting COVID-19 vaccine mandates, especially on kids, we are told that vaccine mandates in schools are nothing new. We have them for polio, measles, mumps, rubella, and on many other things. Therefore, we can have it on coronavirus, too. Wait, what? Most mandated vaccines in schools are for illnesses that mostly impact kids. Unlike COVID-19, where kids are less than one-tenth of one percent of U.S. COVID deaths. Those vaccines are also were also generally mandated only after years of study in the field. Not less than a year since production. Another difference 
is that mandated vaccines are usually a few shots and done. We don't need a second booster 12 months out without knowing how things will be 18 months out. Yet officials and pundits keep comparing COVID-19 shots to the others as if we can't see the differences. Trust. In closing, the upside of me talking to the four walls, Yossi Gestetner says, but he reached a lot more than that, didn't he? Is that I'm not relevant enough here to be flagged and tagged for disinformation, which as this thread shows, is slapped onto accounts who share long-standing documented facts. Don't expect staff at big media to retweet this the way they do troll tweets by small-time accounts who repeat Rachel Madcow at MSNBC because if media were not mostly propagandists, this thread wouldn't have samples to show, and COVID-19 rhetoric and rules would be totally different. P.S. New York hospitals will now report who is hospitalized with COVID versus who's hospitalized because of COVID. With versus of used to be maligned as conspiracy talk, certainly until days ago when Tony Fauci listed this distinction. Is it okay to have such counts on COVID deaths too, or is it still just conspiracies? Oh, but again, trust them, right? Ridiculous. Well, that's it. You've been listening to Episode 58 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempier Tenth. Well, that's the way it is. Monday, January 3rd, 2022.